Clear your mind of everything. I'm going to say a name and I want you to take note of the type of person that you see. Larry. Zoe. War Machine. Only a very specific type of person would conceivably change their name legally to something like War Machine. Someone who likes to be the center of attention and someone with a particular love of violence. These traits both presented themselves within Jonathan Copenhaver, a young MMA fighter from California. Before beginning his career in the UFC, the world's leading MMA promotion, War Machine appeared on the MTV show Ultimate Fighter, where it became obvious he enjoyed the spotlight and was not afraid to be considered a villain. He would often pick fights with other contestants and destroy parts of the house they all lived in. On the show, every episode there would be a fight to see who could stay and continue in the competition. War Machine was eliminated fairly quickly, but was given the opportunity to take part in one of the final fights where he won, this being the highest high his career would ever reach. After this, it was all downhill for the young fighter. There were some new rules added to the UFC soon after he joined that required a specific and difficult winning streak, one that War Machine could not maintain. He lost many of his fights and his reputation was suffering. So, stressed and angry, War Machine dealt with his frustration in the only way he knew how, through violence. He was seen on video camera footage taking part in a very violent brawl at a club, brutally beating up and choking out one of the bouncers who testified against him in court. For this, he was sentenced to one year in jail for felony assault, though it was prolonged to two years after the fights he had taken part in came up during the proceedings. Here he is being interviewed about one of those previous fights, giving everyone a glimpse into his opinions about violence. It's one of those things we hear that and we're like, holy crap, you know, these guys have, you know, they're basically lethal weapons. Um, to, to have that image out there that a fighter is choking people out is scary. Well, but that's nice to choke them out because if we wanted to, they could smash their whole body apart. So a choke is nice and quiet, nice and peaceful. You take a little nap and you wake up, you know how I'm done. You know, on the other hand, you smash them to pieces once his sentence ended, War Machine was released back into society where he seemed to get his life together, at least for a while. He began dating model and adult film actress Christy Mack, started his own clothing line, and got back into MMA fighting. It has since come out that during their relationship, War Machine had been abusive towards Mack, perhaps a foreboding hint of what was to come for the couple. But on the surface, all seemed to be going well. That is, until the couple broke up. Months later, upon finding out that Mac had moved on to a new boyfriend, War Machine, who had obviously never moved on from the relationship, was enraged. He showed up at her house on August 8, 2014, where he physically assaulted her boyfriend, punching and choking him, before sending him away and setting his sights on Mac. He hit and kicked her, cut her with a knife, ruptured her liver, and broke several of her bones, many in the face. She only escaped when he left to go find another knife. She ran to her neighbor's house, who immediately drove her to a hospital. Mac has claimed that she knows that if she had not escaped when she did, he would have killed her. Mac and her boyfriend testified against War Machine in court, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 36 years for 29 different felony counts, including kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, multiple counts of battery, and attempted murder. He is still in prison to this day, and alive, despite attempting suicide in his cell back in 2014, 
When asked about the sentencing, Mac had this to say about her attacker. His attorney did ask for two to five years. Um, and of course, the DA's office, they asked me how I felt about it, and I told them I was not comfortable with it. There's no way I would feel comfortable with him getting out in five years and not killing me. The point is, he broke the law. That's what makes him a villain. It's not his job or his looks. It's the fact that he did something wrong. As for all the counts, I believe that all of the counts are valid, or, or they wouldn't have stood. Um, This seems like a very cut and dry case. A man with a penchant for violence had finally gone too far, and a career full of steroids, fighting, and drinking seems to be a plausible enough explanation for this horrible event. There is one thing of note that many sources recounting this case overlook, though. During the sentence War Machine had served for assaulting the bouncer a few years before his final act of violence, he had been placed in solitary confinement for undisclosed reasons, where he had served most of his time. In fact, he had been released back into society directly from solitary. This seems to be a recipe for disaster for a multitude of reasons that will be expanded on further in this podcast. It can lead one to wonder what the people running the prison had been thinking. Perhaps they'd wanted to see his swift return behind bars. Make no mistake, I'm in no way trying to defend him. War Machine did horrible things and deserves to be in prison for them. I can wonder, though, if his time in solitary might have had a hand in the sudden escalation of his violence. Before we go any further, let us discuss exactly what people perceive solitary confinement to be, why it might be used by prisons, and why it is an important topic to know about. Many people think that solitary confinement is a method of separating guards and inmates from prisoners who pose a threat to their safety and well-being. These especially dangerous and violent criminals are locked in a cell for the vast majority of their days and are not allowed to be in contact with any other people during their sentence. This might seem to make sense. They are being locked away for the safety of everyone else, so no one is getting hurt, right? There is also the idea that all of this time alone might lead to some spiritual epiphany from inmates who get all of this time to introspect and improve upon themselves. One question this podcast will seek to explore is whether or not this public perception of solitary confinement really reflects the true form it takes. Here is Bernie Carrig, a former chief of the NYPD who has served a sentence of 60 days in solitary confinement himself, articulating the argument for solitary. If you take solitary confinement away from the correction officials, you're going to see a major, major increase in violence. These are kids that come from gangs. These are kids that ran the streets. I think is very dangerous. The main and most popular argument against prison's employment of this method is that it is inhumane to lock someone away on their own for such a long period of time. Humans are naturally social creatures, and it is a known fact that being alone for too long is highly detrimental to one's mental health, and that is not even to mention the added factor of being locked indoors for over 20 hours a day. There is also the question of what happens once these people are released. How has this sentence improved their morals and prepared them to re-enter society? Because if solitary confinement does not do these things, is the job of the prisons really done? 
This is a very topical issue that people should be more informed about. It raises many questions, which this podcast will address, regarding whether or not solitary is technically a form of torture, what kinds of effects being alone for so long has on inmates, and if completely locking someone away like that and seemingly throwing away the key is actually justice. One person who can perhaps answer a few of these questions is Lisa Gunther, a Canadian philosopher who has done much research into the ways that prisons have changed their tactics over time. In her book, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlifes, she goes through the different waves, as she calls them, of solitary confinement. She states that we are in the third wave and explains how this is different from any other era. She writes, Gone is the rhetoric of rehabilitation or spiritual redemption. It has been replaced by a neoliberal rhetoric of risk management, security, efficiency, accountability, and public-private partnerships. This illustrates how though the original intent of solitary confinement has faded away over the years, prisons still use it as a method to deal with difficult prisoners for new, more nefarious reasons. Gunther also explains that the other reason mentioned earlier, that prisoners are sentenced to solitary for the safety of other inmates and guards, is not even true much of the time. She writes that many times, people are given these sentences for refusing to work, having contraband in their cells, and sometimes even just the suspicion that a prisoner is affiliated with a prison gang is enough to earn them time in solitary. This goes against the public's idea of what solitary confinement is. And if this method is ever going to change, people need to know what it truly is. Gunther describes the supermax unit, which is where the prisoners with the solitary confinement sentence are kept. Cells are very small, with huge steel doors and windows placed high up so that natural light is let in, but prisoners cannot look out. Usually to limit visual stimulus, walls are painted in gray or white, and the only contact they have with the guards is when they're handed their food through a slit in the door. During their time spent outside their cells, Prisoners are still by themselves and only allowed into a yard outside that resembles a dog kennel, where they still cannot see the sun. Here is an inmate describing a part of his experience. If you could put every emotion of the human spirit of hopelessness, pain, agony, hatred, frustration, uh, a sense of, of, of continuous silently screaming, all these emotions and why you're locked in this cage treated like some animal most people wouldn't even treat an animal like that an animal who was suffering pain they would take him to the vet and get do something for him that clip is from a study that national geographic did about solitary confinement where they interviewed inmates at pelican bay prison a prison notorious for its use of the solitary confinement sentence Many clips in this podcast will be from interviews with these inmates who have not seen the sun or spoken to another person for months or even years. Now, back to Gunther. She describes the sentence as being in a state of living death. Obviously, inmates are alive. They move, they sleep, they eat. But, she writes, a meaningful sense of living embodiment has for the most part drained out of their lives. They've become unhinged from the world, confined in a space in which all they can do is pace back and forth. One of the most difficult aspects of solitary confinement, which Gunther describes, is the lasting impact time spent in the supermax unit has on inmates after their release, specifically on their ability to connect with people and return to normal social lives. 
In her book, she speaks to prisoners who describe their years in solitary, explaining how the only thing they had a relationship with at the time was the cell itself, and how at first living was painful, but that over time they'd become numb to it in order to keep some semblance of sanity. Here is another clip from Pelican Bay of a prisoner describing his search for humanity within his small cell. Where you can hear the vent and you focus on it. Man, did I just hear a whisper right now? And the person starts focusing on this little noise because the noises and the vision are the senses. And that's what we have to constantly survive. Gunther further describes this strange in-between space solitary confinement places inmates into, stating that supermax prisoners risk losing the sense of themselves as persons who matter and to whom the world matters. After being released, many former inmates find it difficult to connect with and talk to people, causing them many problems once they re-enter society. Here is an inmate talking about his experience and feelings, getting to speak to the interviewers. Just being around people, it's... It's not an awkward, it's a good feeling, but it's still an anxiety feeling because I haven't been, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm around, I'm around free people, I'm around regular people. Prisons are supposed to reform inmates. Unless they are serving life sentences or have been given the death penalty, they are meant to be released back into society once their sentence ends. We must ask, does this sort of living death experience inmates face in solitary rehabilitate and help them? Or does it just keep them in a limbo until they are ready to be released with no thoughts on how they might react to all of the sudden stimuli they are exposed to that exist in the world? One case that tragically illustrates the dire consequences that solitary confinement can have on an inmate's mental health is the case of Khalif Browder. Despite happening years ago, his case is still talked about today because it so poignantly showed to the public what the sentence can truly entail. For just a bit of background on his case, Browder was 16 when he was arrested under suspicion of stealing a backpack. He was held at Rikers Island in New York, a prison known to be dangerous and violent, and his family could not help him due to the fact they were not able to pay his bail, which was set at $30,000. There are terrible videos showing guards pushing and shoving him, and of the fights he was a part of and witnessed during his time there. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, he was set free after enduring so much trauma and was found innocent of his accused crime. He attempted to get back into his normal life, got his GED, and maintained a very good GPA, and all seemed to be going well for a while. In the last year, Khalif grew depressed, deeply paranoid. You know, deep down, I'm a mess. I feel like I'm a grown old man. And then two Saturdays ago, two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself with an air conditioner cord in his home in the Bronx. He was due for a court date that very same week for a charge of disorderly conduct. His family and the public speculated that he would rather have died than gone back to prison. His family and everyone else who caught wind of his case after it blew up on social media turned to Rikers, saying that Khalif Browder's treatment while he had been locked up there had been the catalyst and cause of his suicide. His mother in an interview simply stated, it destroyed him mentally. He spent three years in hell. 
Then she went on to explain, It's not one person. It's a whole system that destroyed my son. Reforms are happening. After Khalif Browder's case gained so much coverage, New York did reform some of their harmful laws. For one thing, jails cannot sentence inmates who are minors to solitary confinement anymore, which is definitely a step in the right direction. But the issue of solitary confinement in general as a punishment is still in dire need of addressing by politicians and policymakers in this country. People really need to examine whether or not this is something we can justify putting even criminals through, and if, in the end, solitary confinement does more harm than good for society. The question emerges, why, if there are all of these studies, all of these horrible cases of solitary confinement causing inmates to harm themselves and others, doesn't the system abolish solitary confinement altogether and figure out some other way to separate inmates who misbehave or pose a threat to others? One answer to that question, it seems, is that prisons and their funders do not see a reason to change their ways. The point of solitary confinement for them is not to rehabilitate prisoners and reduce their recidivism rates. It is to punish and contain them, which, as we have discussed, solitary accomplishes quite well. It seems that what the public sees as the job of prisons and what prisons actually do are not aligned at all, and that is what needs changing. Here is a clip of Dr. Brandon Matthews, a criminal justice professional, explaining this issue. Punishment is the foundation of your prison experience and the priority throughout. Rehabilitation is an afterthought and is only lightly sprinkled like seasoning on a steak on top of a system whose core purpose is to punish. Sometimes people need to be punished. They break the law and they hurt people, and for that, they deserve some retribution. But it is apparent that often these same people need help as well, whether it be in the form of therapy or rehab, if they have any hope of permanently re-entering society once their sentences end. Going back to the main case we are observing in this podcast, War Machine kept a blog during his time in solitary that is still available online today. Here are some highlights from the post titled Day 37. You find anything to do to take up time, even two minutes. I haven't left myself for more than a week. I just birdbath to stay clean. I've developed another odd habit. I've been pulling my nose hairs out, lol. Guess the combo of boredom and no scissors to trim them. Every time it happens, I swear I'm done, but then they grow back and like a crackhead, I'm back to ripping them out. Hmm, maybe I'm going a little nuts. From his posts, it is obvious that the boredom and lack of human contact is getting to him, and though he takes a casual tone when discussing it, it has only been a bit over a month and he thinks he might be going crazy and is developing bad habits. And remember, he spent months in that cell after this was written. One has to think, this is a man already known for violence and anger. How could locking him away and alone with a deteriorating mental health possibly prepare him to re-emerge into society? Prisons have to reevaluate their purpose. Do they want to punish people like War Machine, keeping them alone and away from all life, only to send them back into the world where they are likely to relapse into old behaviors and end up behind bars again? Or do they want to keep society safe by using their resources to better their inmates so that they are ready to rejoin the world once their sentence ends? 
If War Machine had gotten help, someone to teach him how to work through his anger and find better coping mechanisms than violence, I feel it is possible or even likely that his life would be completely different than it is today, sitting behind bars yet again.